You're listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast, Holland and Knight's overarching public policy and regulation podcast series. Our public policy and regulation group has an ideal combination of lawyers and lobbyists with a comprehensive understanding of the federal policy and regulatory process. This series will shine a light on the shifting dynamics of governmental entities in the ensuing changes in economic or political policies, laws, and regulations that can have a critical impact on the health and future of your business. Hello, thank you for joining our podcast today. I'm Shauna Watley. I'm a senior policy advisor with Helen and Knight Law Firm. And today, in partnership with the Black Women's Health Imperative and Bluebird Bio, we welcome you to our second podcast in a four-part series on sickle cell disease. I am so excited to introduce you to Tammy Boyd, who is the Chief Policy Officer and Senior Counsel for Black Women's Health Imperative. She leads the Strategic Policy and Government Affairs Direction for the organization, as well as our other co-host, Sonia Elling. Sonia serves as Senior Director for Alliance Development and Government Affairs at Bluebird Bio. And in this capacity, she works with community leaders and policymakers to advance Bluebird's commitment to enable the development and delivery of advanced therapies that can transform the lives of those living with severe genetic disease and cancer. Our guests today are two amazing young people who are doing extraordinary work in the field. Our first guest will be Tiana Wolford, who is the CEO of Sickle Cell Reproductive Education Directive. She has conceptualized this organization, which is a 501c3, and is trying to defeat fertility struggles for other women who are dealing with sickle cell. She is heading up research and seeking resources for fertility preservation. She found very little information about this issue and decided to start her own organization. We also have today Phil Aquo, an accomplished business finance professional and sickle cell advocate who travels around the country being a warrior and advocate on behalf of those um, so they can have a voice. He is a proud Morehouse graduate and he is the proud father of two children who have sickle cell trait. And so without further ado, we will begin this discussion. Thank you again, Sonia and Tammy for co-hosting this important series today. Thank you. Thank you for um, inviting us. Glad to be here. Thank you also. I'm thrilled to be here again and talking about an important um, topic. So Tiana, thanks so much for being here with us today. We're so excited to have you. So I would just like to ask, um, before we dive into all the amazing work you've been doing for Sickle Cell Advocacy, most recently as the CEO of Sickle Cell Reproductive Health Education Directive, could you share with all of us a little bit about yourself and your sickle cell disease journey? Well, sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be a part of this conversation. Um, so kind of starting from the beginning, um, I was diagnosed pretty much at birth with sickle cell genotype SS. Um, and it was so interesting. It's almost like ordained because my mother took a very early interest in sickle cell disease. She did like a huge fifth grade research project on it. And she was in nursing school, did her dissertation on sickle cell. 
But the diagnosis still came as a shock to her because my father swore up and down that he did not have sickle cell trait. So um, growing up, I really didn't deal with a lot of like sickle cell pain crisis. Um, I had a lot of like infections and pulmonary issues. And then kind of when I hit puberty, that's when things really took a turn and started spiraling out of control. And by the time I graduated high school, I just felt so defeated. I had been, I had missed like 80% of my senior year of high school. And I went to a predominantly white school. They didn't know anything about sickle cell. They were not accommodating of me at all. Um, I just felt so defeated. So I ended up having a bone marrow transplant 11 years ago. And I rejected and really my experience and like my front row seat to the disparities of how oncology patients are treated because I was seen on an oncology floor when I had my bone marrow transplant and the treatment was like VIP. It was the world-class treatment and it was just night and day um, to how sickle cell patients are treated. And that's really how I started advocacy. Wow, that's an incredible story. I know Sonia has worked with you in the past and has, is really um, familiar with your story. You know, Sonia, um, I would love to hear how you became um, aware of the work that Tiana is doing. Sure. Um, it was a pleasure um, seeing and talking to you all today. But um, I think I've said before, Tiana's a rock star. She seems to be everywhere. Um, when you look at her bio and all that she does and her passion and her engagement um, in the community, and so that is how um, I became familiar with her is through um, my work at Bluebird Bio and um, our work in the space and the community of um, people with sickle cell. But I do want to share that the first time I had the privilege of meeting her, and I think as we all know, during this COVID time, we don't really meet each other. We see each other on, on Zoom or Teams. Um, but the first time um, I had an interaction with her, she had graciously agreed to speak to Bluebird Bio, all employees. And we do this as an educational opportunity so that everybody across the um, company can learn and better understand that people were trying to help and research um, new technologies for. And Tiana was experiencing a pain crisis, was physically in the hospital in excruciating pain. And not only um, did she insist on continuing to participate, we could have rescheduled, canceled. She wanted to continue to show up and be present for that meeting, share her story, and was so vulnerable and being in that moment and experiencing that type of pain that I don't think I have any capacity to begin to understand. And um, the strength mentally and physically for her to do that, what she did that day, I think is probably evident throughout all the work that she does. And so one thing I would kind of love to know is where you find that, that energy and how you keep going and doing the hard things that you need to do as a truly um, a rock star ambassador in the community um, and, and where you find that inner strength. Well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. I want to take everything you said and add it in my bio. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that I just run off of passion. I just genuinely love what I do. And I've always been the type of person who is inspired by challenges and the sickle cell community we face so many challenges there's so much like stigma and inequity and I just 
feel so passionate about trying to be a solution. So that's what it is. I run off of passion. And I remember being so disappointed when I was in the hospital that day. And I was trying to figure out, like, maybe I'll put a virtual background so they don't know that I'm here. But um, I decided to just be transparent and raw about the fact that I was there because I wanted you guys to see kind of the realities of what sickle cell warriors go through like the night before I was totally fine and then I was in this excruciating pain but it was really an incredible opportunity to be able to kind of experience that vulnerability with the team and how you guys embraced me it was like really rewarding to be a part of it was amazing and I have to say that word raw is so is so spot on because I, again, just being transparent and trying to be as transparent as you are, there were some people that said, oh my goodness, that made me uncomfortable. But I, I think that you need to make people uncomfortable to get to, to see change and to make change and to help people better understand and get out of their comfort zone. So anyways, I'll get off my soapbox, but I thought Rob <laughs> was a hundred percent, like, like, like I thought that was pretty amazing and that you're amazing to have been so vulnerable like that in Raw. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that is pretty incredible. Um, thank you for your incredible strength and courage um, to, to be able to say, this is who I am, this is where I am, and I'm going to continue to be an advocate even um, now while I'm not feeling so well. So we, we really appreciate that. I'm excited to just hear all that you're doing. And we also have another guest today, um, Phil, who I am excited to introduce in you know, you are another phenomenal and passionate advocate for the sickle cell community who manages to keep pushing for change um, and increased understanding of sickle cell disease, despite all that you manage in your own personal life. Um, you're now located in Atlanta, Georgia, moving forward in your career, um, but you're still being an advocate. So we'd love to start by tossing the same question to you that we asked Tiana. Can you share a bit with us about yourself and your personal sickle cell journey. Thank you for having me, Sean. I appreciate the question. And, um, you know, my, my journey is, is, is sort of similar. I was diagnosed at birth or roughly around six months of age. I was born in the UK and um, my mom, my, my dad was actually, um, he was a doctor. He was doing his residency in OBGYN at the time. And so there was some awareness of sickle cell, but I was born in the 80s, early 80s. Um, and so there wasn't as much uh, fluency around, you know, kind of the genetic counseling and things like that. So um, my my journey with sickle cell began there. Um, it started with a crisis at about six months of age that uh, required me to be hospitalized and necessitated a transfusion. And then there was kind of a calm thereafter, um, you know, because my, my dad was um, a medical professional. He was, you know, very diligent in making sure he and my mom were both very diligent and, you know, ensuring that I, you know, had the 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 care I needed and exposure to the the hematologists and the physicians and somehow we we moved from the UK to the states when I was about five years old and at about the age of six I got involved with the the Sickle Cell Disease Foundation of California um, and I got to attend their camp which now that I look back on it now you know for me to be able to attend that the first year as a six year 
old was uh, was pretty impressive and kind of remarkable for my folks to be able to, uh, you know, to to feel secure enough to do that. But it was something that I didn't necessarily really appreciate how much I needed. But that camp experience was something that, that took me kind of all through childhood and instilled in me a lot of education and self-efficacy about um, how to live a full life with some accommodation in order to to be able to do all the things that people do normally like camp and swim and horseback ride and, and the like and um and so my advocacy journey kind of started from my aging out of camp and not really wanting to leave and uh coming back as a counselor and um and then as I moved away to college and went through my transition journey um there were opportunities to kind of come back and to mentor other young adults who uh, were going through this journey of transitioning into adult care and that is um Still, to this day, a very volatile time for those of us uh, warriors uh, with sickle cell is transitioning to adult care because much of the expertise, unfortunately, continues to remain on the pediatric level. So mortality, morbidities, all those things really increase, particularly between the ages of 18 and 25. And so as I started to see some of the, the, the peers that I grew up with and went to camp with, um, you know, start to um, encounter a lot of challenges and some of them ultimately losing their lives, um, including a cousin of mine who, uh, who lived in Nigeria, where my family's from, that really kind of um, inspired in me a real just passion about, you know, maybe out of a sense of survivor's guilt, perhaps, but just wanting to do all that I could to ensure that um, other young warriors didn't necessarily have the same difficulties that uh, me and some of my peers were having. And I think if not for the grace of God, I could have easily been one of those statistics, right? And um, and so um, it's, it's one by one, you know, one one meeting at a time, one encounter at a time, just slowly showing up to tell your story um, and to radically kind of destigmatize the entire experience. And so I think that has also very much been a, a characteristic of the advocacy journey, which is becoming more and more comfortable with telling that story and um, slowly but surely kind of removing the fig leaves one by one and just letting people know that you you live with this condition and that, um, you know, it does impact how you move, but, uh, but it doesn't necessarily have to limit you so i'll leave it there probably i'm sure you got other questions i don't want to filibuster you but uh i don't know it's amazing one of the things that you that i really heard you say a few times was the word warrior and you describing you all who are in this battle and i it's, it's interesting is that a word that you use or is that a part of the vocabulary of you all who are suffering with sickle cell or living with sickle cell? That's a great question. I think it's uh, it's now at this point, would you say, Tiana, it's kind of the, the entire community. We're kind of all settled on this term. And it, I think it used to be prior to, you know, a little bit more conscientious concern regarding HIPAA and things like that. We used to be referred to as sicklers, which, you know, some people view as problematic, others less so. Uh, but yeah, increasingly we've kind of settled on the term warriors to, to, uh, to both you know, bond us to each other, but also to really kind of um, sum up the experience of what it is to live with a condition that is at once so painful, but also simultaneously quite invisible. And that often um, lends itself to our being scrutinized when we show up in clinical settings for care rather than being helped the way we need to be. 
And I think that it also came from not only do we identify as warriors because of, like you said, the daily kind of battle that we go through, like fighting against stigma, fatigue, chronic pain, all of that. But I think we just didn't want to be identified as patients because it wasn't, it just didn't honor our full lives. So that's kind of where that came from. And I remember it was actually a member in this community who started kind of coining that term and we all just attached ourselves to it. Wow, that's amazing. I want to um, turn it over to um, my fellow co-host, Tammy Boyd. I believe she has a few questions and would like to engage in the conversation at this point. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Tammy. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Shauna. Um, I think both of you brought up great points, um, you know, as sickle cell warriors. Um, and, you know, I guess to start for you, Tiana, a question would be, you know, one of the things that we do with Black Women's Health Impaired is we try to really talk about the lived experiences of Black women. Uh, and so when we talked before, I thought it was just so amazing. Um, you know, could you talk a little bit about your organization? Because as you talk about um, sickle cell warriors, there's also the part about reproductive, you know, being, um, you know, as, as a black woman and what, and what that is like. So, you know, could you talk about that a little bit just in terms of your organization um, and your focus? And that's really a, a lived experience of the whole person of a sickle cell warrior. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I'm excited. I think that our missions are so aligned because there really has been in the sickle cell community, um, Phil and I talk about this all the time, there's been so much priority on survival and just keeping us alive. Um, Because for so long, individuals with sickle cell disease, they were not living well into adulthood. But, you know, thanks to medicine and the grace of God, we've come such a long way. And so we as a community and as this organization kind of want to raise the bar and set a new standard that it's no longer enough to just survive. We want to have the best quality of life possible. And my team at SC Red, we believe in order to have that quality of life, our reproductive health experiences have to be considered. And I think that the timing is amazing just with everything with the Black maternal health crisis And I know that there's a history of women, particularly Black women, having to fight for autonomy of their own bodies. And unfortunately, you see that happening in real time. And I've experienced it myself. Like right before my bone marrow transplant, I expressed not wanting to do it because I wanted a lot of children and I didn't want to be infertile. And it was this young white doctor who looked at me and really dismissed that. And it came down to, well, don't even worry about your fertility or having children. Let's just keep you alive. And what I'm seeing is that that experience is not unique to me. We have doctors telling women with sickle cell that they can't have children, which is not true. Um, We have them saying things like, why do you even want to have these conversations when you're too sick or too poor anyway? And so the mission of SC Red, it's really broad and it comes down to like social and reproductive health injustice. Because when you look at the oncology community, there are so many grants 
that offer fertility preservation, particularly if you're going through chemo. But in the sickle cell community, we don't have the same access to that. So it really does come down to inequity and disparities. Absolutely. And, and um, to even follow with you, um, Dill, you know, what are some of your, do you see some of the same, I mean, you know, for men, do you see some of the same barriers or challenges, um, maybe even not just for you, but even for even some of your, your, your peers as well? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, so much of the discussion, as Tiana alluded to earlier, has, has been um, just about the, the idea that we should kind of just be lucky to even survive, right? And there is this, this prognosis that, again, for someone like myself, born in the 80s, you know, we wasn't expected to, to live through adolescence, much less adulthood. And so that being the case, you know, the whole prospect of being able to have, you know, father children and and enjoy that experience of, you know, having a family and doing all that. Those weren't things that I necessarily um, grew up with the expectation of doing. And so I, I do have two young children now. Uh, my son is six and my daughter is three. But and I but I recognize that to be a luxury, unfortunately, for many of warriors around the world because so much of the care, the presumptions around the care is that we won't make it to this level. And so what I really, really appreciated in collaborating with, with Tiana, with this organization is that it forces healthcare providers and you know the key opinion leaders in the space to really stand up and take note and to begin to rethink what it is about, what it is that we're capable of achieving in terms of our quality of life. What are the things that we should be looking for and you know kind of beyond and that it's, it's much more about just surviving more than that is it's now a matter of how do we thrive and I think our reproductive health is is very much at the center of that because when you're talking about thriving you necessarily have to shift your focus intergenerationally right it's funny you use the word thrive because as you were talking you know I was thinking of that same word like how do we get to a point where the community can thrive even as they're managing sickle cell and living with sickle cell. And so, you know, Sonia, I, I know you've been in this space as a policy expert for a long time. Do you see any um, legislation coming forth or policies on the Hill or things that can be taking place where we can be advocating in a more aggressive way in Washington on behalf of this um, important community? Sure. Um, so I think both Tiana and Phil, um, and I was going to actually ask them a question too about some of the ideas we've all talked about and that we've seen come from the NASME report, the National Academy of Science, that had some great information and um, input from uh, warriors, um, as well as from the scientific and medical community. Um, and I think um, there are pieces from that that Ash, um, we have to give a shout out to Ash, has been definitely trying to focus and increase not only um, funding, but as well as trying to move forward with some ideas in regards to how to have more coordinated care for people with sickle cell. And the one piece that I know that, um, you know, Tammy, you and I, and Shauna, we've been talking about and some others in the community that is also based from NASME is how do we figure out how to address, Tiana, the experience you shared in regards to that disparities of care between oncology and, and, and sickle cell, and how do we encourage and recruit um, and support more physicians and more hematologists um, in the sickle cell space. And how, and where do we, um, you know, how can we do that? And how can we all collaborate on that? And so, and then obviously, I'll let Tammy probably speak, probably knows far more about HIA, but I know that the Health Equity and Accountability Act 
has been present for quite some time and figuring out ways that we could potentially, you know, not only be supportive, but collaborate and find a way to, to weave um, the importance of ensuring equity for um, people with sickle cells as well through that. And Tammy, did you have any thoughts or um, follow-up questions? Or Sonia, did you have any follow-up questions for Tiana and Phil as well? Well, my question is going to probably come a little later. I was going to ask, you know, just, you know, how can we, I mean, we kind of, you know, Black Women's Health Imperative, we um, really try, we want to really, again, make sure we are doing things and passing, you know, implementing policy and, and advocacy around the lived experiences. And so what is it that we can do um, from our side to sort of um, to support you, to help you in your in your journey? Well, I think that part of it starts with what we're doing right now, even just giving us a platform to share these experiences, because you really don't have a lot of awareness around these issues. Um, and then the other thing is like Sonia was saying, there's a lot of this that does have to come from like the policy and legislation side, which just being fully transparent, like I am not that girl. I don't know a lot about policy or legislation, but I do know that there are policies in place for women with cancer or men with cancer, if they're going to be undergoing chemotherapy and radiation, that their insurance will cover fertility preservation, whereas we don't have that. And unfortunately, just kind of due to the plot of sickle cell warriors, over 60% of this population is covered by Medicaid and Medicare. And we've already started engaging in conversations about how to address fertility preservation from a Medicaid and Medicare standpoint. And we literally have people who are like, we don't want any parts of Medicare and Medicaid. So even just helping us to figure out how to move and kind of advance that work. So I would love to have that conversation with you um, and, and, you know, work through and have some, you know, dialogue about how we could, you know, address that. And there is, you're absolutely correct, because it's, I think, the latest numbers around, like, the majority of it's like 54% are in Medicaid. And so you, um, um, people with sickle cell. And so you did hit on an issue when you bring, once you bring the government into the situation and ensuring, you know, access, there are significant challenges, um, as well as a different path for education to try to get that access. We'd love to continue that conversation with you. I, I think, uh, to the, to the point of the question raised earlier by Tammy, I think as far as, you know, how we can help, not just through platforms like this, but also leveraging the expertise that I think, you know, um, uh, organizations like the Black Women's Health Imperative and others are, um, you know, you guys are definitely have capacity in certain um, respects that, you know, an organization like Tiana's Sickle Cell Reproductive health education directive, it is a mouthful, um, you know, we're still getting up to speed. And I think that is is um, definitely an opportunity. And, you know, I think for, it will always be an opportunity, but I think in as much as there are a lot of learnings in the collaboration, that right there is always going to be uh, an opportunity, not just in raising awareness through, you know, platforms like this podcast, but even just in working together and kind of showing the ropes and, and seeing how the policy is made or the, the sausage, as they say sometimes, um, it is made. So I think that 
that, you know, that is definitely something that is interesting. And I think that was perhaps one of the reasons why uh, Tiana wanted to to include me in this effort, because I had had some exposure to that in my time uh, in Texas, uh, both in helping to to co-author and then to to testify in front of the Texas House of Reps on behalf of um, legislation policy specifically for sickle cell. Um, uh, in this case, um, this was related to the use of uh, opiates, opiate restrictions that were there were exemptions for the oncology and cancer community, but none yet for sickle cell. Um, and we didn't really have much by way of additional resources or treatments. Um, and so to, to, um, to restrain the opiates um, for a condition as painful as sickle cell um, without other options for treatment is really, um, I would, some would argue cruel and unusual, you know, or, or inhumane. So it was, it was very, encouraging and comforting to see that legislation get passed in Texas where, you know, we thought we might've had much more of an uphill battle than it, than it did. I think it also telling the story helped to resonate and um, move people to action. Well, that's very, very impressive um, that you were able to do that um, with not a whole lot of, I'm assuming your background is not in like policy or um, for you to decide, you know, if not me, then who? and to move forward in faith and, and say, look, we're gonna do this. And, you know, it's a law in Texas, but what about the other 49 states? Like, how does, how does that work? And is there a movement to, to, for your legislation to be passed across the United States? You definitely hit the nail on the head there, Shauna. I think uh, Tiana's big goal. I don't want to. I don't want to step on your announcement if you want to. You want to make it, Tiana. But I think we're we're definitely starting with a kind of state by state, and I think there's a recognition that it's going to start in the states, and then probably we'll have to build a groundswell from there. But uh, did you want to? Did you want to lay out the actual uh, path forward, Tiana? Or uh... yeah, I mean, it's kind of what we were saying earlier. We are trying to use Maryland as a case study. We have some people, um, like some endocrinologists and hematologists, even some policymakers who have expressed interest in wanting to help with this policy initiative as far as making fertility preservation more accessible. And that's kind of our plan because we know that while we are hoping for federal legislation, everything has to be executed on a state level. And that's kind of like my basic knowledge of policies. So we would love all of you to kind of help us with that initiative. I, I would say absolutely. I mean, so I'm, I'll echo what Sonia said. We can definitely, you know, talk offline um, about being helpful uh, with the legislation and maybe even, you know, also on the state, on the state level. So again, I mean, that definitely aligns with, with the mission of BWHI. Um, so we're, we're, we're definitely helpful supportive of that. And based on what you just shared, don't, you're not allowed to ever say that you're not a policy girl ever again, because you definitely have a firm hand, firm handle on the federal versus state and Medicaid. So yep, you're now a policy person. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> Just in terms of other things that you guys are, you know, as we talk, are other things that you all are, are hopeful about um, as you, you know, in terms of what you're seeing now, in terms of, you know, just I feel like there's there's a heightened awareness around um, sickle cell. But are there things that you're hopeful about that you're seeing out there? Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is an incredible time to be a sickle cell warrior advocate because, I mean, 
as an advocate, just even looking back five years ago, we're living in the times that we advocated for back then. Like to even have these kinds of conversations where you have doctors, warriors, caregivers, um, industry partners all at the same table. That's something that wasn't happening. There is a heightened awareness. There's all these new therapies. For so long, we only had hydroxyurea. And now we have three new FDA approved drugs with like over 70 coming down the pipeline. There's all this talk about gene therapy. So there's a lot to be excited about. And then just what Phil and I were saying earlier, just this time where people are kind of rethinking and revisioning sickle cell. Absolutely. And then I can, Sonia, I don't know if you have some follow-up questions. So, uh, and it may not fall into this area, but I I would love to ask a a little bit more about, you've been, Tiana shared such great information and I think helped us all learn more of the challenges for um, people with sickle cell, especially in regards to access to fertility treatment and um, and access and, and insurance coverage to some capacity. And you mentioned earlier the difference in care for oncology and um, sickle cell patients, but would love to get a sense from you. And I, I know you say you're not a policy person, but I really honestly believe the best policies are organic by nature. So much like Phil, all that you did in, in Texas and the, the, the grassroots effort down there to be successful in getting the law passed in Texas to ensure appropriate access to opioids for people suffering um, with sickle cell. Curious, like, if you have any other top-line policy issues that you think really are the most impactful, if we could figure out how to address them. So I would say, as far as the top three issues that come to mind, again, I do believe that uh, the emphasis on reproductive health is one that forces a conversation. It forces uh, healthcare providers to lift our gaze beyond just you know, trying to perhaps alleviate our pain um, and to see us as it, as at once both viable and um, you know, worth worth investing and and having those those discussions about um, how we plan to to raise up families for those of us with sickle cell. But I think another really really important area for me, um, I alluded to it a little bit in terms of the discussion at the top of the conversation around my journey, um, having a big role in, in the transition process. Um, and the transition from um, pediatric care to adult care, again, is a, is a pretty major um, healthcare issue. I think that um, I've described it in other settings as it's kind of the healthcare hunger games, right? It's very much a lot of young adults who are kind of coming of age and then having to deal with what often feels like medical gaslighting in terms of showing up to get care and then being treated as though you're either imagining it or you're making it up. And so oftentimes our community feels so frustrated, lost, and unsupported that, you know, many of us, we can be in the middle of the most intense uh, pain crises and feel like it may not be worth it for us to, to, to muster up the effort to go and be seen clinically. And the reason why I, I think this actually all ties in quite neatly, dovetails into the mission of, of SC Red because you know this is this is the level upon which we need to start having some of those reproductive health conversations. Uh, I, some many would argue this discussion should be started before the transition process takes place, but um, but as part of a broader conversation about how we can do a better, a much better handoff, that is something that I think is is a big opportunity. 
And then I think thirdly, there's something to be said for those of us who, again, as warriors are starting to live a little bit longer. I celebrated my 40th birthday this year, which is a big deal because, you know, rather than a midlife crisis, some might argue I'm kind of on my my third or fourth life uh, based on what the prognosis was at the time I was born, but it's um, is, is end organ damage. And so for those of us as we're getting a little bit older and the cumulative impact of those sickle cell crises, how do they impact us, you know, in our kidneys and in our heart and in our liver? Um, and how do we sustain, how do we ensure that what may have been a pretty positive quality of life outcome is able to uh, persist through, um, you know, throughout through this period where we're aging in um, in a manner that we, again, as a group, haven't necessarily been able to do historically. So those are three areas um, that I think are big opportunities. And I know that Tiana is going to have some good ones to follow up. Um, I think you, honestly, I think you touched on it all from a policy standpoint. We've talked about access to fertility preservation and then like you were saying earlier, the sickle cell community, they've been like unintended victims of the opioid crisis. And so we really need to push to get that exemption across the board. But, you know, I've just become so obsessed with this reproductive health. So that's really all that's in my purview right now. But I'm sure that once I accomplish some of these things with fertility preservation, I'll have a laundry list of other policy initiatives I want to tackle as well. You, when you, I, I am curious though on that, when you mentioned all the great work you're doing on, on your passion for fertility preservation, curious, is there a role, is there a, a need for education of medical providers or is the initial focus, which I, I completely understand, the initial focus truly on making sure individuals have that access to fertility preservation. But it sounded like, based on your earlier, your personal experience, there was, um, is it fair for me to say, some some bias as well as some, trying to be, my mom says be kind, so lack of awareness by some of the, um, the medical um, professionals that you experienced during your journey. Oh, absolutely. And like, you're being polite. I don't have to be. So I think what he wanted to say was ignorance. There's a lot of ignorance. And so that is definitely something that this organization, like while we're prioritizing advocacy, we also have plans for curriculums, not just for warriors, but for healthcare providers. And like, how are you talking to these patients? What are you saying to them? How are you perceiving them? And are you putting too much of your own agenda in when they come in for visits? So there's definitely a disconnect um, between warriors and providers. And it kind of grows as we age so absolutely there's a need for um more awareness and education of healthcare providers and also to that point sonia i think one of the things that i'm excited to say that sc red is doing in that area is is, uh, developing a curriculum specifically both targeted towards patients so that they have a better understanding of kind of like a reproductive health over over their lifespan but also um looking at developing a curriculum as far as like continuing education for healthcare providers that, um, that also brings, um, you know, greater awareness, um, as you, as you indicated. 
Yeah, the CME was what I was definitely, you know, my geeky policy brain was thinking of for the continuing medical education and whether or not that would be an area, again, for us to continue that dialogue. So I know BWHI has been great in that um, area as well, Tammy, and you guys have done some things in other spaces um, in that with other outside partners. So that sounds great. And as usual, you guys are doing great work and 12 steps ahead of me. Oh, that's amazing because I've actually been researching like how do we get CME certified or accredited or whatever for these courses. So um, that's definitely something. And then, you know, I would be remiss. We have um, two amazing co-founders, Dr. Kim Smith-Whitley and Dr. Lydia Pecker, who have really brought to my attention that sickle cell warriors deserve a reproductive life plan. So even when you look at like CDC guidelines, sickle cell patients are not written into that. And so that's another thing that we're working on is really just what I'm, what I'm realizing is that with this reproductive health, it's so much bigger than sickle cell. And for so long, we've been kind of isolated, but this reproductive health umbrella really allows us to attach ourselves to other disease communities. So we deserve guidelines on contraception. And Phil was talking about it earlier, like genetic counseling. That's something that this community would really benefit from that isn't necessarily accessible either. And, you know, we don't have a lot of high-risk OBs who are willing to take care of women with sickle cell. So there's definitely a lot of work to be done. That's very helpful, especially as you talk about access to genetic counseling. Um, and you're right, I mean, the, the reproductive health uh, movement is, is definitely one um, you know, that spans from the maternal, you know, the black maternal health crisis, all the way, as you said, to contrac- you know, contra- access to contraceptives. Um, so um, definitely that, you know, that's one is uh, front and center. Um, and, you know, we're working a lot on that. I think this has been great. Um, yeah, I'm good. And, then, and I didn't know if you wanted me to, I'm not trying to weave anything that, you know, yeah, we're good. I think this is great. Um, unless you guys, I mean, Tiana and Phil have anything else you think is important for people to learn and and know about you know i think one of the things that i saw kind of in the dialogue prompt uh for this for this uh little sit down that i really really definitely wanted to uh to to jump on was just um was the the, the one about uh, i guess the quote attributed to dr king about um, uh-huh. our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter and so i just really wanted to take a moment and just commend tiana for for being being vulnerable because this this um this organization is at once very personal to her um but she's she's definitely standing up and she's speaking up about things that matter you know for for people that um in many cases the recipients the people who receive the benefits of this these efforts are likely to be people other than her right and so as somebody who um is an alumnus of uh, the same institution as dr king you know one of the principles we uh we had indoctrinated us in our matriculation is that we are our brother's keepers. And so that very much extends um, into the warrior community. And in as much as this is, you know, a black women's health imperative, you know, by extension, we are our sister's keepers as well. And so, you know, that these things, these are the, the ideas that continue to inspire the work that we do. And, um, and I would probably also add to that. I think um, Tiana was perhaps a little bit modest about is the, is the global view that she had in terms of impacting warrior communities, not just here in the States, but around the world. And so I think that for me is just one more reason to be inspired by her example. 
Wow, what an amazing discussion. I am so inspired by Tiana and Phil. And I just hope that um, for those of you who are listening to this series, that you were able to gain some important nuggets about how you can be more engaged and helpful to um, sickle cell warriors and be um, an advocate on behalf of those who cannot speak for themselves. And I just thank my co-hosts, Sonia and Tammy, for joining me today for um, being a part of such an important discussion and the work that you all are doing um, on a daily basis to advance this important issue here in Washington. Thank you for listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast, brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. For more information on our Public Policy and Regulation Group, please visit hklaw.com slash PPR.